to another edition of the UK Law Weekly podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week, we're going to be looking at the case of the Crown on the application of Steinfeld and Kaiden against the Secretary of State for International Development. And the citation for this case is 2018 UKSC 32. This case examines the status of civil partnerships in the UK, especially in the context of marriage and, more recently, same-sex marriages. The applicants, Rebecca Steinfeld and Charles Kaiden, are a different-sex couple, a man and a woman, who do not believe in the institution of marriage and instead want to get a civil partnership. The problem is that under the Civil Partnership Act 2004, it is only people who are of the same sex that can get a civil partnership. Steinfeld and Kaiden's GoFundMe page states that this fails to reflect the reality of modern family life in the UK with more than 3 million couples cohabiting, and around 2 million children left without the full protection that would be available to those whose parents are married. In the end, this is a question of equality. Same-sex couples have a choice as to whether they want a civil partnership or a marriage, but that same choice is not open to different-sex couples who are stuck with either a marriage or no formalisation of their relationship at all. With that in mind, the case was brought under Article 14 of the European Convention on Human Rights, the Prohibition of Discrimination, as well as Article 8, the Right to Respect for Private and Family Life, so we'll be focusing on Article 14. The claim was dismissed before the High Court as well as the Court of Appeal, but as the case came before the Supreme Court, the government did accept that the question did engage Article 14 and therefore required justification. The question, therefore, was to do with how precisely this justification worked. Does it have to be a direct justification of the inequality itself, or can it take into account the time it takes to investigate the inequality and work out the best way to get rid of it? The justices of the Supreme Court began with the Marriage Same-Sex Couples Act 2013 when a conscious decision was made not to repeal the Civil Partnership Act 2004 or alternatively to extend the 2004 Act to cover same-sex couples as well. The government wanted time to let the dust settle and investigate how people viewed civil partnerships before choosing between these two options. In many ways this was fair enough because, if you think about it, civil partnerships had only been around for less than a decade at this point and so it was difficult to gauge if they were popular not only amongst same-sex couples, but also straight couples as well. On the other hand, the government knew that legislating in this way would create an inequality on the basis of sexual orientation. That is the key to understanding this case, as the government argument centres around the wide margin of appreciation that case law from the European Court of Human Rights appears to allow around decisions by the government to change the law. The reasoning behind this is that we are dealing with a political issue where it is up to the executive and legislative branches of the government to take action. And so the judicial branch should respect the separation of powers and not interfere. The Supreme Court, however, disagreed and dismissed the idea of this margin of appreciation having applicability in UK domestic law. Does this mean that the court was getting itself involved in politics? Well, not exactly. The court simply has to deal with the right interference that is brought before it by an applicant 
and decide whether that interference is justified or not. The discretion, and more precisely the period of investigation that is available to the government, might be a factor, but is unlikely to be significant when deciding if there has been a human rights breach. Think of a more extreme example where a government policy allowed for torture to be carried out. The excuse that the government might want more time to think about whether it wants the law to allow for torture or not is hardly going to stand up to scrutiny. It might be fair to assume that the government is not going to be able to legislate immediately, but there are a couple of significant points that lean heavily against the government in this particular case. Firstly, as we mentioned earlier, the Marriage Same-Sex Couples Act represents a conscious decision to legislate in a discriminatory way, and so this deliberate action by the government entitles them to less leeway. In other words, the government has created this mess and therefore has a much greater responsibility to sort it out. Secondly, the government's investigations have made little to no progress. There was originally a consultation carried out on this question in 2012 before the Act had even received royal assent, and this was followed by in 2014 by another review. But as recently as May 2018, the government has openly admitted that it has failed to reach a consensus on the issue, and therefore is not taking any action. Lord Kerr described this as, quote, significant, end quote, and did little to hide his disdain that this combination of factors an inequality deliberately created by the government, alongside a failure to come up with a way to resolve it, was never going to attract much sympathy for the government's argument. In any case, the actual test used to decide whether interference with the right is justified has four parts, and the first question that needed to be answered was whether the legitimate aim of the government was important enough to excuse limiting one of the rights under the ECHR. The argument here managed to fall before even reaching this first hurdle, though, as the justices queried whether the aim of the government could even be described as legitimate. In order to be so, it had to be closely linked to the interference itself, but simply tolerating discrimination while you work out what to do about it is never going to be acceptable. That is a practical concern and fails to provide a good reason as to why different sex couples are placed in a lesser position compared to same-sex couples. By not even requiring an answer to the first part of the test, it was unnecessary to answer the other three questions associated with justifying an interference. For example, the second question is about whether the measures taken by the authority are connected to the human rights issue, but that is difficult to apply when we are talking about inaction. A similar point can be made with respect to the third question, where the court would have to see whether the purported measures go further than is necessary. Nevertheless, it is interesting to note that the justices did briefly consider the final question that deals with the more general point of proportionality and the aim to balance the rights of the individual against those of the community. What I mean by this is that if someone shouts fire in a crowded building, they might be exercising their freedom of expression, but it is in the interests of the community that people don't do that. It's much harder though to see what the community interest is in preventing different sex couples from getting a civil partnership. There appears to be no downside, while the benefits extend beyond simply establishing equal status across sexual orientation 
and include greater financial security for both partners as well as dependent children. Taking all of this into account, the Supreme Court unanimously decided to make a declaration of incompatibility in respect of this application. Now, those of you who subscribe to my free email newsletter will already know many of my thoughts on this issue, as about a week ago I commented on another recent case where the unfortunate practical realities of the law as it currently stands had played out. We will cover Siobhan McLaughlin's case in more detail in a future episode, but for now we can simply say that the fact she was not married to her long-term different sex partner meant that she lost out on a benefit called the widowed parents allowance. In a similar fashion to the case before us today, it was held that the law was incompatible with Article 14 and therefore a breach of her human rights. The point that I made, however, goes beyond making civil partnerships available to different sex couples, as this is straightforward and should have been organised as part of the Marriage Same-Sex Couples Act. In order to get to the root of this issue, we need to explore why it wasn't part of that package, and why the government has seemingly refused to act on this issue, despite having already had more than six years to do so. Unfortunately, the answer comes down to religious conservatism, and a fear that heterosexual civil partnerships will undermine the institution of marriage. In response to the ruling of the Supreme Court in this case, the spokesperson for marriage and family life within the Catholic Church, Bishop Peter Doyle, reiterated the importance of marriage as a union in the eyes of God. That is all well and good if you believe in God, but the reality is that society is becoming less religious and it should not be surprising that institutions are changing to reflect that. The other benefits to marriage that are listed, such as lifelong commitment, a basis for family life and equal partnerships, are not exclusive to marriage and form the basis for civil partnerships as well. The bishop's views are unfortunately the tip of the iceberg and are quite mild compared to some of the commentators on this subject. Andrew Tattenborn, for example, is a professor of commercial law at Swansea University, but that hasn't stopped him offering his two cents on the matter. Tattenborn was writing for a website that in very much Handmaid's Tale fashion was called The Conservative Woman, and it won't surprise you to learn that on a site with that name, around two-thirds of the authors are men. I would say go to check it out for a laugh, but given that it is a portal for thinly-veiled homophobic and Islamophobic views, I can't recommend giving it any of your bandwidth. Seriously, Swansea University, what are you doing employing this guy? Anyway, our former UKIP candidate describes Steinfeld and Kaiden as petulant, and questions their upbringing before suggesting that the right not to be discriminated against is not worthy of protection under a human rights regime. The whole piece is hysterical in tone, and doesn't bring anything to the table in terms of legitimate debate, but this gives you some clue as to the sort of Daily Mail reading dog-whistle argument that stands in the way of sensible reform. Tattenborn favours the abolition of civil partnerships altogether, and it may surprise you to hear that I am actually inclined to agree albeit with the caveat that if we're doing so, then marriage should be abolished too. Okay, let's roll back on that a little bit. Maybe people could choose to get married if that is their desire, or even get a civil partnership. 
To be honest, I don't really care, but let's not coat this religious or civil ceremony with the legitimacy of recognition by the state. The idea that one relationship is more legitimate than another because of a piece of paper is ridiculous enough, but that that piece of paper then entitles you to state benefits and tax breaks is arbitrary, unfair, and does not recognise the realities of family life in the 21st century. We are surely beyond prescriptive arguments that try to tell people who they should love, how that love should be expressed, and the correct way to raise a family. This case should never have got to the Supreme Court, and not because some regressive old professor doesn't believe in freedom from discrimination, but because the state should keep out of our personal lives, and the fact that it doesn't is overbearing and, frankly, a little bit weird. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this episode of the podcast. Thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. If you do want to sign up for the newsletter that I mentioned during the episode, then you can do so at uklawweekly.com. I promise you won't regret it. It's a great newsletter, even if I do say so myself. Anyway, I'll be back with another episode next week. But in the meantime, bye!